Welcome to Idaho Public Land Summit, a grassroots effort brought about to advocate for the preservation of public land in Idaho and the West. This podcast is paid for by Wild Web West. My name is Mary Mangold, your host, and my co-host, Derek Farr, is going to talk about the differences between scientific and political land management. How are you doing, Derek? I'm doing well. Uh, now, last night, I saw that, that email that you sent. And the email contained a message from, uh, what, what's her first name? Mrs. Ivory. Oh, Becky. Becky Ivory, all right. And, and there's something, there was some information in there that was absolutely true, that she said that if you want to have more control over the land, local control is the way to do it, right? With local control, local people can make local decisions. So then you have to say, who's going to be managing the land? And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here, because the people who are going to be managing the lands have a, a different way of looking at land management than actual land managers do. So let's let's reverse, and I know we talked about this before, but at that Forest Service meeting we were at, remember Jim Schmelick got up in front of the audience and he used statistics. He said, this is how many acres were burned last summer during the fire season. This is how many board feet of timber was burned. And this is how much that was all worth. And these are the revenues that we lost because all that timber's gone. Well, there's a problem with those statistics. It, not only that, he even mentioned the amount of the number of animals that were killed in, in the fires. There's a problem with these statistics, though, and that they don't exist in the real world. They're a figment of his imagination. They're false. And preceding his arguments, or his, pre- preceding his words, uh, the supervisor, Rick Brazil, the Clearwater, uh, Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest Supervisor, Rick Brazil, stood up in front of everybody and said that he, that Jim Schmelick is not using statistics that are valid, that he contends the validity of those statistics. And there's a reason for it, because Jim Schmelick doesn't have to operate in the realm that a scientist does. And we manage our national forests, we manage our national lands predicated on science. So things that you can prove, things that have been revealed over time through research, that puts great constraints on public land managers because they have to base their management schemes off of proven science. Now, as a politician who doesn't have to follow in those rigid framework of science, you can say whatever you want. And it's not going to be true, but still, rhetorically, you can say whatever you want. That was a really good example of that because he was saying what he felt to be true, even though he has a person who is an expert in the field telling him he's full of it, he still won't believe it, he won't buy into it. So <clears throat> when you're talking about local control and locals having control, well, we clearly see that somebody there who is emboldened and excited to have control over these local resources. And the very first step or I guess the first salvo in his push, his, his battle to gain control over those resources, he, he fires the first shot by citing statistics that have no basis in reality. Okay? Now let's move on. A couple, of weeks, a couple of days earlier, about 10 days earlier, this came out. This is from the Idaho Department of Lands. And what this is, 
is an anal an analysis of potential impacts of legislation similar to Utah House Bill 148. This is how it would affect the state of Idaho. <clears throat> so, just as a background information, House Bill 148 is the bill mm -hmm. that they passed last year. It, it passed all the way through. Governor signed it, uh, which transfer, which demands the transfer of three million acres of land in federal in, in federal control in southern Idaho to the state of Idaho. Uh, sorry, in Utah. southern Utah to the state of Utah. Yeah, on December 31st by December 31st. Uh, 2014. Okay. okay. When they passed that bill, they had had not done an analysis to see what the costs or the cost benefits would be. They just did it. Now they they have mineral resources down there, so it was a pretty wide assumption that okay, if we exploited all those all those resources just as fast as we could, we would definitely be making money. Still, no, no analysis done. So when this came up this year in the Idaho State House, and, and uh, Representative Lawrence Denny was suggesting that there was going to be a similar bill to Utah House Bill 148, they asked for an estimate. This says analysis. It's more of an estimate. And, in fact, this is the famous back-of-the-napkin estimate done by Tom Schultz, who's the director of Idaho Department of Lands. And when we look at this, we see that he's estimating that it would eventually, they would be able to make, the bottom line is 51 to $75 million per year. That's the hypothetical management cost and estimated net revenues under the state's legal framework and lands after transition fully to state management. Okay, so these are the lands that they want to take. And they're going to do it under the state's management, which is a far, far cry from the Forest Service management. Forest Service is more of a focus on sustainability, multiple use, and multiple resources. The state's primary objective, and only objective, is to make money for the state endowment. They're not interested in these other disparate interests. They're not looking, uh, they're not looking nearly as, as hard at other resources. Their primary goal is to make money. And I think we see that when you go to state-controlled lands, you go up to service flats, you see there's a significant difference in the land ethic or the, the rules of the road when you see the way land is treated there compared to where it is on national forest. Okay. Well put. So, this is the proposal that... Tom Schultz put together and released back of the napkin again and it, does, it shows a couple things. One is that they're not proposing any of the wilderness areas. Okay. Uh, they'll leave those alone. They'll leave uh, you know, national wildlife refuges alone, uh, all that kind of stuff. But what they're going after is National Forest Service land in this dark green all these little dots of National Forest Service land totaling about 6.9 million acres. Okay. This down here, the dark brown is, is a grazing land that they, would, that they would seize from the BLM. That they're planning on barely, not making a profit, just, just barely breaking even on this grazing land. And that's a, that's a different story we won't get into quite today. Okay. The dark green, though, this is significant because what they're doing is they're, they're cherry-picking the best possible lands. In other words, the flattest, the lowest elevation, 
uh, the most densely populated with stands of trees that they can. In, you know, picking the cream of the crop of our forests off of the forest service land uh, for them to manage in a much more rapacious way than the forest service does. Now there's a problem with it, and that is these estimates that he uses, uh, he, he underestimates the cost of firefighting because he estimates it's only going to be $45 million a year, when last year the federal government spent almost a quarter of a billion dollars. Uh, I'm assuming, just looking at the map, because these lands are so so dispersed that they'll just count on the Forest Service to go ahead and do most of the firefighting anyway, mm. which is kind of sticking to the to the taxpayer, but let's, we're not really talking about that. Uh, the next thing that he underestimates, or well, he overestimates the price of, of lumber, the price of timber, and uh, he, he overestimates the ability of the land to sustain this incredible rate of 800 million board feet uh, or 1 billion board feet of timber per year which is a unbelievable amount. Considering the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest last year produced four, was it 40 and they want to move to 60? I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. So last year they made 40 million board feet. They're looking at something you know, astronomical. Mm. So would that be sustainable? Uh, science could figure that out. So let's talk about the science of land management. Okay. The, the, the predicate for the Loxaw Land Exchange, and you can see it right here. Make sure it's still, yeah. You can see the Loxaw Land Exchange okay. area, proposed exchange right there. Those are lands that are checkerboarded, uh, so they have very, very fragmented lands. And the, the, the predicate behind it is you can't manage those lands when you have pockets of land that, that the Forest Service controls and pockets of land that the Forest Service doesn't control. So they wanted to consolidate those lands to make it so it's possible to manage those lands. The Forest Service has spent millions of dollars, millions of human hours, to consolidate their lands, making that possible. Now, let's take a look the state's plan of capturing the, the best and, and, and brightest of our national forests. Okay. What does it do? It fragments our public lands. Look at the, in the caribou target down here. Look at that. Yeah. It's absolutely fragmented. Look at the fragmentation in here. In other words, they're going to render this land virtually impossible to manage. Mm-hmm. So all the progress that has been made on this, on the front, on, on science, that these, these land managers can't manage lands that are fragmented into million pieces like this. They can't do it, so they've been working to reverse it. And what does the state legislature do? They propose something that is absolutely counter to what the mission has been of these professional land managers for all these years. Mm -hmm. So in, in other words, Again, we're, we're facing a situation where the people who wish to manage the land are using figures that don't seem to be based in reality. They're going against the scientific management of these lands, things that we can verify, things that we've seen over time, things that can be measured, 
they're casting all of that aside for their grand plan, which is a version of House Bill 148. And if you want to get down to the, the brass tacks of what this is all about, it's about the ability for people to, to go in to avoid science and log or mine or do whatever they wish to do without having to live within the constraints that land managers do now because they don't have to they don't have to have fidelity to any scientific method whatsoever. Yep. Now, this plant, in my opinion, was a total joke. And I brought it up to a gentleman who works for the Idaho Department of Lands, and I said, Tom Schultz, in my opinion, has really invalidated himself as a legitimate land manager for these lands when he when this uh, when this study comes out, and this is his back of the napkin estimate. Now, what I was told, and of course this is hearsay, but what I was told is this gentleman works for this Department of Lands, actually talked to Tom Schultz on the telephone and asked him about this study. And what Tom Schultz said is it wasn't so much as a study as it was an exercise to reach these numbers here. So it was a backward study. Where the numbers were given to him, we're expecting this to be about 51 to 75 million dollars net profit for the state per year. Now, come out with an estimate that makes that happen. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can, you can. It doesn't take long to think where those sort of suggestions might be coming from. It'd be coming from somebody like Lawrence Denny who is the representative, he's on the, re on the resource committee. I think he might be the chair of the resource committee. I think he might be, yeah. He definitely has a lot of sway in Boise. And clearly, if they're wanting a scientific study, this is not what they got. This is mm. not what they produced. So let's fast forward to House uh, concurrent resolution. It's either 20 or it's 21. It's 21 and 22. 21 and 22. One of those is uh, that is the, the dopey legal framework set up by the American Lands Council that you can see on their website. I've, I've actually sent that to somebody at, at the University of Stanford Law School who said that categorically you can denounce everything it says in it because none of it's true. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you can say anything because I can, you know, s slice it out. So I actually sent him what it was. It is essentially that legislation, and he says it's hogwash. Let's get beyond that one because that's not really the topic that's okay. not germane to our topic. Okay. The next one is the committee that they want to set up. Right? The other bill sets up an interim committee to study these issues. Now, you would think because of these issues are so entrenched in scientific land management, in other th in other words over the, the scientific theories that can be proven and reproduced and, and have become the, 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 the ways that we manage our public lands through experience and through verifiable experimentation, all those sort of things, you would think that the committee that you would set up to, to investigate a possible land exchange in greater detail, you would think that there would be a scientist, two, three, four scientists, on the panel. Well, how many scientists do you think they have nominated or are suggesting in the framework of this bill to be on the panel? Jim Schmelick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer is zero. There's none. The panel is set up, it's structured, 
so politicians, so people in the House and the Senate can be on, on the panel and investigating these very, very serious issues. Now, they do say that they can have other outside experts on the panel, but those experts are expressly prohibited from being paid to take part in the panel. So now we start seeing a little bit of a bigger picture here. We start seeing people in the State Department of Lands who seem to have a disconnection from, from reality. Mm -hmm. We see local politicians like Jim Schmelick who will stand up in front of a person, an expert in his field, and use mistruths right after that person has said that those are mistruths. We have a, we have a legislature that is dominated by people who don't really care about what the science says. They would just prefer to see, hear what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And we have a system set up where if an exchange were to take place, it would be counter to everything that the Forest Service has worked for to establish these areas, these national forests, as healthy as, as, as best as they can. Mm -hmm. Everything goes against science, which is unfortunate because this is based on science. The work that the Forest Service does is predicated on science. That's why you have biologists, you have engineers, you have hydrologists, you have um, resource specialists. Most of these people have um, master's degrees. Many of them have PhDs in these fields. Yeah. Now to have a politician stand up who's a cabinet maker and has an e economics degree, those are noble professions and that's a noble course of study, stand up and ignore what experts are telling them, telling him in, the, in his field, in their field, ignoring what they're saying so he can meet his end. That gives you an idea of the sort of mentality that you get when you have local control. Even if you were to say, hypothetically, there would be some great sagacious group of local people who would manage our lands properly, it has not yet been demonstrated that they can do that. We've seen, we see it over and over and over again. Because at the very outset of this entire exercise, this entire argument that we should be transferring our lands to state control, we have yet to see anybody who has used actual verifiable science in their argument. Instead, we've seen phony studies, phony statistics, and a, a phony framework for something that really does come down to be quite phony. And that is the notion that you can transfer these lands into a different, a different management scheme and away from sustainability, more towards profit, and not have some net loss. And that net loss is going to be the access to the land, the land looking like it does, and the land having the productivity that it does, and essentially boiling down to our, the economics of our quality of life. There will be a trade-off. No doubt, no doubt. So you articulate it so well. It's everything I've thought and you know, felt. But you know, hearing it from you just helps to give me that confidence that I'm not. Oh, you're you're not. And I tell you what, the problem is that it it gives it may give you confidence, but it should take away any confidence that any of these people are making any sense whatsoever. 
they're not wanting to use the number one tool of the trade to talk about the tool of the trade, and that's science. And in fact, they're science adverse. I, I think Ken Ivory has an economics degree and, and a law degree. I mean, that's, he doesn't, he's not an expert of natural resources, and I'm not either. But that's why I defer to people who are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those folks aren't deferring to people who are. Yeah. They're claiming that they already know it all. Yep. Which is really disturbing. If you went to the to a doctor's office to get an appendectomy, and the person who was going to do your surgery wasn't a surgeon, but an economist who builds cabinets, you'd be a little bit concerned. <laughs> yep. So, local control in my opinion, has already proven itself to be a, a very, very dubious thing for the well-being of our forests, of our community, for the longevity of both the resource and the people who use that resource. And that's about all I have to say. And this concludes our first podcast recorded on March 15, 2013. We hope you'll join us again at Idaho Public Land Summit.